I, um, I like to run. I really like to go running. And I really like cake. Some of you will begin to see the immediate problem here. I, I like to get up early in the morning and go for a run, and afterwards you feel absolutely fantastic. You've been out, the early morning sunshine, the woods to yourself. But I really like a lie-in. There's no better feeling, it seems, that when you, uh, you run and, uh, and, and you just feel the road pound beneath your feet and you come to the end of it and you're on a bit of a high. But likewise, binge-watching your favourite TV series is also kind of good. I do like running, but I'm aware that the more I lie in, the more cake I eat and the more TV I watch, the harder it is to actually get up and go running and really enjoy it. And likewise, the more I go running, the less time I have to watch TV, the less inclined I am to say yes to that delicious piece of cake, and the more likely I am to get out of bed and want to go running some more. There are sometimes things we're drawn to that mean putting aside other things, and we're drawn one way, the other side diminishes. It strikes me for the Christian that's a constant tension in the Christian life, and it's one of the things Jesus talks about in the passage we have in front of us from John chapter 17. Uh, amongst many others, and I hope it will be helpful to us this morning to think about it. Uh, there is a handout, as we mentioned. Uh, on one side is a few uh, points just to uh, sort of work out where you are, um, and on the other side is the passage. Uh, it's a rich passage, so I've given that to you there, so you want to draw on it. I think if you draw on the church Bibles, I'll frown on that, so best draw on that instead. But it is a rich and complex passage. I wonder what you thought of when you, when you heard it read. There's lots in there, isn't there? It strikes me that it's a bit like um, wicker. You know, wicker chair. I had one as a kid where you sit there and see that the little hexagonal pattern made by all the strands of very thin cane uh, weaving in and out. Uh, it's like that. There are lots of really simple statements here that seem to kind of run in the same direction and run different directions, and the whole thing weaves together to make a really strong statement to us. And uh, that's what it is. It's, it's a strong statement to us, but actually, it's, first of all, it's Jesus praying to his Father. And be good to bear that in mind. Here is the Son of God talking to God the Father, and we get to hear. It was presumably in front of his disciples, which is why John can write it down for us. But he prayed in their hearing to his Father, and we get that unique insight into what was going on in his head and what he wanted for them. So you'll see there's three sections. Uh, there's much more to get out of this, but three sections I've uh, split up into and just got a couple of points out of each one. They tend to get smaller as the talk goes on, uh, just for reference. But let's have a look. What is it, as Jesus prays to his Father, what is on his mind and heart the night before he goes to the cross? Well, in verses 6 to 10, Jesus prays for those given by God to know God. He prays for those given by God to know God. He, he continues, one sense, those first five verses we heard last week uh, to reflect and glory in the success of his father's mission through Jesus that created the disciples, the ones hearing him pray. And there are two strands here, two sets of weave in our wicker, if you like. Firstly, you see that disciples have come to know God through Jesus. And secondly, we see that disciples were given by God to Jesus. Let's go to that first one first. The disciples have come to know God through Jesus. Let me read those first couple of verses again with a certain amount of emphasis. 
I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have comes from me. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. You can hear some of that come through. Lots of expressions talking about the same thing, the disciples coming to know God. Verse 6, Jesus starts by saying, I have revealed you to them. I have revealed you. Jesus has revealed God to the disciples. They know him, not perfectly, but they know God. And all these other expressions have to do with them uh, coming to understand, coming to accept, coming to know uh, everything about God through Jesus through all that Jesus said, through all that God gave to him to share. All these different threads point to the fact that Jesus was essential in the disciples coming to know God. Because Jesus revealed, they were then able to accept and believe and know with certainty this awesome God of the universe. And for at least three years, they had 24-7 seen Jesus' life. They'd heard his words, they'd witnessed his miracles. Their convinced belief was that Jesus was God made human, the Son of God. I'm sure my wife didn't take three months of living with me to work out that I wasn't as good on the inside as I appeared to be to everyone else, maybe even three days. But the disciples saw the real Jesus and knew he was really God and revealed God. Look at verse 10. Just how astounding is this? All I have is yours and all you have is mine. That's what Jesus says to God. Now one part of that, we can all pray can't we? The first few words, we can all pray, all I have is yours. And we should pray that. What a great prayer to pray to God. All I have is yours. A prayer of acknowledgement that he is the creator who's given us all things. And a prayer of commitment to give them to God in service to him. The second part, only God can pray. All you have is mine, Jesus says. Jesus is God made human, God's son. Only he could pray pray such a prayer. And this is the way uh, all people come to know God in personal relationship. It strikes me that every other religion or philosophy or spiritual path attempts to lead people a bit closer to God so they can, they can look for him, either morally or intellectually. But Jesus comes to us, fully God. He doesn't bring God a little bit closer to make it a bit easier. He closes the gap entirely. He walks off the page of the Bible fully God and showing us everything about God. And he went to the cross to deal completely with our fallen morality and wrongness of heart. He closes the gap entirely. It's a gap so huge if we take sin seriously. It would be like one person trying to shake hands with another person over the Atlantic Ocean. One standing in Britain, one standing in America, attempting to shake hands. And so many other religions say, look, it's okay, I've built a jetty. It doesn't begin to scratch the problem. But if Jesus is God, he can close the gap entirely. Can't go there any other way. Just three chapters earlier, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Only God can say that. So are you seeking a more intimate relationship with God? 
Are you seeking to know God in the first place? Does he seem strange or faint or far off? Well, Jesus is the one to come to. And you get to know him by listening to his word and accepting it. So verse 6, Jesus says, look, they've obeyed your word. Verse 7, now they know that everything uh, you've given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me. And what did they do? They accepted them. They knew with certainty I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And we come to Jesus through the written words of the Bible. That's not a concept of God or an idea of Jesus, but it's the real person. And it comes not when we read the words, but when, these verses tell us, we accept them as God's words. God introduces himself. He describes himself, and he describes us in his word, the Bible. He explains why it requires Jesus' death and resurrection to bring about a loving relationship between us. Have you ever had someone tell you about you and get it right? More than you would? Well, God meets us when we accept his words about himself and about us. That's a strange experience. It requires a lot of acceptance of what God says to accept he knows more about us than we do. Uh, when I became an um, ordained the Anglican Church, they made us go through various uh, processes, one of which was to go and see uh, a psychologist, to sit down and have a chat for an hour, and they produce a report, which you then get to read afterwards. And uh, oh, to this day, I still remember that one sentence that just stood out entirely, something I would never have said about myself, but having seen it in print, I knew was true. And it was disturbing that someone had spent just an hour with me and was able to get to the truth of who I was as a character you know, so clearly. Having someone tell you about yourself accurately is a disturbing thing. And yet when we come to the Bible, we need to hear about God, him introduce himself. We need to hear about Jesus, the Savior, and we need to hear about ourselves. And it's not always good news, news that we'd want to hear. Secondly, we see the disciples were given by God to Jesus. Uh, again, look at his verses. Uh, how many times has it come? I revealed you to those whom you gave me, he says in verse 6. They were yours. You gave them to me. Or verse 9. Uh, I pray for them, not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Because it's a great thing. These original disciples of Jesus were chosen by God. He gave them to Jesus. So in Luke chapter 6, we can read Jesus stayed up all night praying with his Father, talking to his Father in heaven. And the next day, he chose 12 to be his apostles. And it's a wonderful truth that God already has those who are his. He's given them to Jesus for Jesus to reveal God to them. Complex, wicker work here, I know. And Jesus did that by using all that God gave him. Here it is so clear that God is in charge of every aspect of the Christian's life and faith. We sometimes talk about God's sovereignty, don't we? It's a strange word. We tend to use it just of God. I once attempted to use the word kingshipness instead, but it didn't catch on. Sovereignty, God's kingship, uh, is over the universe. And that has to include our hearts and our minds as well. God already has those who are his. If that isn't true, then God isn't really king over everything. God gave the disciples to Jesus and said, look, they're mine. Now, tell, me about, tell them about me, and they will believe you and know me. Now, I think we can find this a worrying truth as well as, or instead of, a wonderful truth. 
It should be a wonderful truth to our hearts, but we can worry about it too. Because it makes us doubt our part in choosing God. We say, well, did I, did I really choose God then? I became a Christian? Did I really do that? Where's my free will? And sometimes we feel a bit, you know, a bit grumpy about that. Yeah, where was my free will in that whole process? But a human will, free of God, would never choose God. A human will, free of God, would never choose God. Read your Old Testament. It's really clear. Be honest about your own heart. That, that attitude is what the Bible calls sin. Even wanting the free will to say, no, I'd like to choose God or not on my own terms, is sin. It's a rejection of God. A fundamental, ongoing rejection of God. Because a will, free of God, would never choose him. Be glad, it's a wonderful truth. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian today, then don't be concerned. Uh, God doesn't mystically brainwash people. Please do use your brain, engage your heart, seek God, uh, read the Bible, ask questions, uh, talk to people. And if you reject Jesus in the end, then the idea that God is sovereign will be part of that rejection. Uh, You won't mind because you won't think it's true. But if you do accept him, then it will become a wonderful comfort to you over time. And if, Christian, you worry that you were never capable of rejecting God, be thankful. Really, be thankful. Because if you know this God, then you know he is worth everything. Everything. And he should never be rejected. Even the idea that we would reject him is a horrible thing because of how wonderful a God he is. This is a wonderful truth. As true of every Christian as it was true of the disciples. I guess, it, looking at the illustrations, they're all going to fall down at some point, aren't they? But I was thinking it's a bit like this. A, a baby comes home uh, to a family, and it is part of that family. It has parents. It doesn't know that. Gradually, as it grows up, it becomes aware of who it, who it is and who its parents are. And at some point, it goes, oh, I'm part of this family. Well, it's been part of that family for a long time. The parents have known that all that time. The baby, the child, discovers it it makes it no less true and no less a part of the family. I say it's not perfect, but maybe there's something a little bit of what God is saying when he says, they're mine and I've given them to you. Do think this through, though. Uh, The idea of us choosing God and him choosing us throws up lots of questions in our mind. Uh, Be honest about the questions and concerns you have. Um, I have them too. They arise as sort of bubbles sometimes in Christian life, don't they? They just pop up and go, yeah, how does that work again? But do be thankful. Do be thankful that God chooses you. I don't know about your week. I've had a very flat week spiritually. If I was relying on me for faith and on me for the ability to preach today, I'd either have to admit failure or stand up here a fraud. But because God gives to Jesus those who are his, I know he's sovereign in all things, including the heart. And he has me. And he has you. So be thankful. The second thing uh, Jesus prays as he talks to his father is he prays for the protection for disciples as he leaves them. Look at verses 11 to 16 with me. And verse 11, Jesus says he's leaving them. This is his last night before he's crucified. And then he goes on to ask his father to protect the disciples, which sounds like a good thing to do. But notice 
how he asks for protection. It's actually exactly the same protection they already have. Uh, Holy Father, he prays, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me, the same name. See, as Jesus is praying to his Father, uh, his disciples overhear him say, look, they're already yours, and now they know you, and now you protect them even as I protect them. They're just as spiritually safe without Jesus as with him because the name he was using was the same as God's name. Well, what are they to be protected from? Well, when Jesus gave them God's word, the gospel, and they accepted it as such, it turns out a massive change happened, not just in their hearts, but also in the world. Verse 14. I've given your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And John's Gospel uses the, the term the world as shorthand for everything in human hearts and human society that opposes God or would reject God. So I've given you a word, they believed it, and the world now hates them. And he doesn't ask them to be removed from this problem. Look at verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He doesn't protect his followers by stopping the fight or preventing the attacks in the first place. Those things are going to happen. But he prays for protection in terms of their enduring faith in the God who has them. Jesus' ability to keep those safe who are his has been talked a couple of times already in John. Uh, this is John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40 says this. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he's given me. Sound familiar language? but raise them up at the last day. For it's my Father's will, his settled, determined purpose, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. Safe here is safe for all eternity in God, because he has us. It isn't safe as uncomfortable. Accepting Jesus' words moves them from being accepted by the world being rejected by it. A world which would reject God and his sovereignty to accepting God's sovereignty over your own life. Christians are as much a part of this world as Jesus is. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. As a separation that every believer in Jesus experiences from a world that rejects God. You may experience it in all sorts of places, in our workplace, in our homes, our schools, our streets, our neighbours, or through society in general, and the media, and politicians, and the laws that are passed. All sorts of different ways we might experience it. But Jesus brings us out of that world to a belief in God. And what is the attack of the evil one? I think in the context here, it could be a number of things, but the context here particularly points us become part of the world again, which is to accept Jesus' words less. It's like a coin with two sides. We become part of the world, we accept Jesus' words less. We accept Jesus' words more, we become less part of the world. One will lead to the other. If we accept Jesus' words, then uh, prepare to be alienated in some way and reject them and you will fit in better with the world. You'll feel more at home, but you will be alienated from God instead. So why is it, as Christians, I'm sure we all have this, why is it at times we want to push God's words to one side? 
We all have that, don't we? Sometimes we, we open our Bible and we're, we're hungry for God's Word and we want to hear it. And when we read it, we accept it with joy and determination to follow it and hold it precious in our hearts. Other times, we, we, we don't even feel like picking up our Bibles. We come to God's words and just say, oh, you know, I'd rather not. I'll hear them, but I won't accept them. What, what, why is that? It's because our hearts normally are longing for something that's in the world that is not godly. There's something that God says isn't good. Maybe it's to spend time entertaining the fantasy of that bigger house, the newer car, rather than pursuing godly contentment. Maybe it's wanting me time rather than family time all the time. Me time. Rather than saying, actually, God calls you to love with the energy you have, not wait until you've got energy to spare. Maybe it's watching that sex scene in that movie again on that website rather than holding your heart the focus on exclusive loving sex that God has put in place. Maybe if we want to just be part of the group at school or at work, and being a Christian makes it harder to join in the jokes and the gossip and the banter. Maybe we long for a partner who really values us and does things for us and will cherish us rather than the one we promised God we would be faithful to. They want to imagine a life where we are more in control rather accept that the circumstances we are in are actually ideal for being godly and growing in our appreciation and worship of God, however hard they are. Why do I? Why do you push God's words away at times? Because we want something else. Our hearts are drawn to the other side. And we can do it for a while, but it becomes a dangerous habit I mean, dig a little when it happens, and I suspect you'll find something at the heart of it that you want that is not what God wants. Part of the world you're drawn back to. I don't know anybody who's called themselves a Christian, uh, who has given up on God without there also being something of a heart reason, a pull towards the ways of the world which they know God is against. And they'd rather have that than have God. And the good news is, of course, whenever that happens, we can turn, we can apologize uh, to God and come back to his words. We can work on our minds and our hearts to say, hear these words, these are the words of the one who has eternal life and they're nowhere else. We can have people around us in church, in home group, who encourage us to say, are you hearing this as God's words? Are you loving the world a bit too much? We can pray and ask God for help that only he can provide but we must hear God's words. Jesus prays to his Father, protect them from the evil one. They're out of the world. The world will hate them. Protect them. And the same is true of us. Well, lastly, and very briefly, uh, verses 17 to 19, Jesus prioritizes the disciples' sanctification. Uh, I always think sanctification is like a, a painful word, isn't it? If you didn't know what it meant, someone offered it to you, you'd, you'd refuse, wouldn't you? It just sounds, uh, sounds like what hurt. Uh, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Sanctified. Made holy. Made holy and separate. Made holy like God is holy, and separate from the world. Separate for God. And there are two things Jesus says sanctify here. Uh, his truth, 
the, your word is truth. That God's word brings about holiness. It brings about separation from the world. Uh, as, we, as we read it and we accept it, and we tell our hearts to accept it where they're stubborn, well, uh, we'll find a growing attraction to the awesome and holy God it describes. And Jesus also says in verse 19, it's a sanctification of himself. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. I think he's talking here about the cross. What is the last act Jesus has to do? What's the last thing Jesus has to do to, to, to show to the world that he truly is holy as God is holy? It's to obey his Father in all things, including going to death on a cross. Going to die not because he deserves it, but because he wants to rescue people who do deserve death. They do deserve God's wrath. And he's the one willing to step in and take it. That's his final sanctification of himself. And by that one thing, he sanctifies us completely. In God's eyes, we are just as holy as, he, as the Lord Jesus. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Not just demonstration, effective work. And that's true for all of us. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 reminds us of the need for all of us to be sanctified in that ongoing way to being, having been given it by Christ to pursue it as well. And just these words were addressed to God about the disciples who were there with Jesus, they're for us as well. Do you know that Jesus has provided sanctification and are you pursuing it through the truth of God's word? And it's great to hear that Jesus uh, prays for their protection and explains their sanctification to the apostles for their ministry because we not only read about their ministry in the New Testament, but also they wrote the New Testament. So one final encouragement from John 17 is that as we read God's word, we know that these are people who wrote it for us, who, were, who knew God, who were chosen by God, appointed for the role, who were protected by God as he went through. When they faced death, they didn't falter. When they faced pressure, they didn't err in what they wrote. And so we can trust, as we pick up our Bibles this morning, that we are reading the wonderful words of Jesus to his Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we do rejoice as we open your word day by day. We can read things that are a great encouragement and challenge to us. We can read things that are easy to understand and put into practice. And we can read things which are, require a lot of thought and careful reflection. And we can read things which are hard to do. Uh, Father, we all have dreams of the world that we find hard to give up. Would you help us as we read your word, not just to read it, but accept it? Would you turn our hearts to love you so much that the world grows strangely dim and that we put our hope in you? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.